Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, March 28th, 2022. I'm John Bodhwartz, the editor of Commentary. We are just nine days away from our live podcast in Palm Beach, Florida. On April 6th, go to commentary.org slash live podcast for details. Uh, I got uh, I got my colleagues here going to be with me in South Florida on April 6th. I got uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, Washington commentary columnist, American Enterprise Institute scholar and author of the Almost Out the Right Go order at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, from your independent bookseller, wherever fine books are sold, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. I, I guess my ticket to the live commentary podcast recording was lost in the mail because I uh, have not yet received an invitation, and I yet, I'm, I'm, I'm bursting with excitement for the, uh, well, for, for the event. I'm bursting with excitement for you to listen to the event. <laughs> well, that's, it sounds because, like that's what I'll be uh, there's doing. There's only... Cause, uh, but, uh, you know, we'll, uh, Dan Senor is going to be there. Uh, and, uh, it should be a great, it's a great thing. Commentary.org slash commentary.org slash live podcast. Why am I tongue tied? I'm tongue tied because the craziest thing that has ever happened in my 60, nearly 61 years on this planet happened last night when, uh, one of the biggest movie stars in the history of the world, owing to the bizarre uh, rebuilding of the Oscar set, happened to be five feet away from the host who made a joke about his wife. So he was able to stand up, walk onto the stage with two steps, Will Smith, walk up to Chris Rock and slap him across the face in front of the entire planet Earth and then scream, having done this, then scream obscenities when he got back to his chair, when he got back to his seat. Now, Abe Greenwald will tell you that my uh, deeply considered philosophy about America in the 21st century is grounded in part in the last jaw-dropping spectacle event at the Oscars six years ago, I think, five or six years ago, when uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway misannounced the winner of Best Picture, said that it was La La Land rather than Moonlight, and as Abe will tell you, this then was the generator of my theory that nothing in America works anymore, that everything broke down, that like the things that you could rely on for being clockwork, at the very least, like announcing who wins best picture, uh, that was going to happen. And when it didn't happen, it sort of connected with all kinds of things to suggest that somehow the good working order of American society had broken down irretrievably. <laughs> this is something else. This is something about the good working order of American civil society and the question of whether or not famous people, rich people, respectable people, whatever you want to call them, uh, really do believe that they live and play by different rules and that uh, the world will judge them differently by the way they want to act. And um, we watched a felonious assault live right in front of us. And uh, Chris Rock decided not to press charges uh, and Will Smith sat down. He got up 10 minutes later and cried about how tough his life is. And then he partied all night after winning the Oscar. Can I just add, he doesn't get to decide. Chris Rock doesn't get to decide not to press. I mean, he could not press civil charges, but a DA could still charge Will Smith with assault, which is what, in fact, he did is assault someone. If that was a just two dudes on a sidewalk, the cops and the cops were involved. Someone would have been arrested for that. That's assault. You're not allowed to just go around smacking people because you're upset. I thought it was a really horrible example to the country. I think it's a, a huge amount of celebrity privilege. I was uh, uh, then again, I it, it also kind of comports with the everyday American experience lately, which is that people's tempers are frayed. Civil society is eroded. And people are settling disputes violently, and that's not good. Right. So you said last night that this is like this is like the um, national manifestation of the of the masking fights that have been breaking out on airplanes. Yeah, that's what he reminded me of. It's like an angry airline passenger. <laughs> um, I mean, so the joke was about how uh, Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, has a shaved head. And then apparently everyone's supposed to know that she has alopecia, which 
I was unaware that I was supposed to know that Jada Pinkett Smith had alopecia. First of all, I know more. I'm embarrassed about how much I know about rancid American popular culture. But if I didn't know that Jada Pinkett Smith had alopecia, most people don't know that Jada Pinkett Smith had alopecia and that she wasn't going for a very, for a specific look for some uh, reason or other. And then Will Smith makes a joke that she's going to be in G.I. Jane 2, which is a very obscure pop culture Chris reference Rock. to Chris a Rock failed a Chris Rock. Me. Chris Rock made this joke, failed Demi Moore Ridley Scott movie about a, a you know a woman who becomes a soldier and then has her head shaved. So Demi Moore's head was shaved. So he made a joke that you're going to be in G.I. Jane 2 that I didn't understand when I thought, wait, I don't really remember G.I. Jane because it was so bad. Was Jada Pinkett Smith in it? Maybe she was in it as the second lead. So maybe they're making G.I. Jane 2. And then because it, it was about her having a shaved head. And then she like she made a face. Will, Will Smith laughed. He then must have looked over at her and saw her making a face. And then he flew in an inst- into an instantaneous rage. And uh, did something that no other, I don't, I, I mean, the very fact that something like this has never happened, I mean, it sort of hasn't really happened like till the 19th century, you know, like when, you know, that guy caned the guy in the, in the, you know, Sumner, uh, Sumner, on the Sumner, Sumner and Brooks, yes. Yes. Sumner yes. and Brooks, right. Yeah. Sumner the caning Brooks. incident the in, in, in the U.S. Congress. Um, Not prompted by a joke about alopecia, but about a debate over slavery. Just want to make yes. sure our room listeners know that. Yes. Isn't this a good thing for the Oscars? No one cares. No one cares about the Oscars. Ross Douth that's writing in the New York Times that movies are over. I was at the Wizards game. I could care less about what happens at the Oscars. And now all my morning and my, my attention is drawn to what happened there. Isn't this perversely good for the Oscars it, it, to get attention for what was becoming a moribund awards ceremony? Could be, although, you know, it's like if you weren't watching it, I mean, maybe this means what the Academy should do all next year is, you know, tune in in 2023 because you never know who's, you know, rematch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, somebody might have a rifle in the, you know, it'll be like the Manchurian candidate. Someone's going to have a gun up in the up in the parapets. Yeah, they assassinate someone on stage. That's you know, that's always what's how firm, how, how much, how can you beat what what just happened? light slapping look the best part of any of those avengers movies is when the heroes fight each other so here you have this big dramatic narrative where you have the two two big celebrities going at it uh so i think it adds a certain uh, flair and drama to what was uh, becoming just kind of a sideshow that no one really no one's talking about the best picture winner that's for sure well, look, by the way, I only cared about this Oscar. I will tell you my personal story about the Oscars. Now, as everyone knows, I've been, or everyone doesn't know, you don't know because it's like knowing about Jada Pinkett Smith and Alopecia. So you have no reason to know this, but I've been writing about the movies for more than four decades. And, uh, you know, currently I'm serving as the intermittent film critic for the Washington Free Beacon, the publication that Matt started. Um, and uh, but, you know, like everybody, I've sort of fallen out of the habit of seeing movies or going life has become difficult to, to, to scheduling to go see movies and stuff. And uh, this movie Coda, which is on Apple TV Plus, I hadn't watched. I hadn't seen because it sounded like a drag to me. And it was like one of those, you know, kind of like TV movies of the week about people with disabilities. And I didn't want to I didn't want to see it. And I had no interest in it. And then, but it was nominated for an Oscar. And I was like, well, of course it was. It's about deaf people and a hearing daughter. And, you know, it's like homework to watch it. I didn't want to watch it. Didn't want to see it. But yesterday afternoon, after it had this surge of victories and various precursor reward ceremonies, uh, my wife and kids and I sat down and we watched it. And it is glorious. It is a wonderful, spectacular piece of work. And suddenly I was deeply invested in who was going to win best picture. And I was going to be angry if Coda didn't win best picture. And it did. And I was thrilled each time when it won best adapted screenplay, which was the only other creative award aside from supporting actor that it was nominated for. I was like, ha, see, it's going to win because it beat power of the dog, the supposed front runner in the screenplay category. And if it was going to win there, it was going to win best picture. And I was 
thrilled. So this is actually what Oscars can be or can do for people when you actually care what is and what is not going to win. And one of the weird things about the last five or six years of the Oscars is it's been very hard to care about the nominees. Like these movies don't engage people emotionally. They engage critics who, and I'm a critic myself, but you know, who are interested in things that are other than having an emotionally satisfying experience at the movies. So they love Roma, which is a movie that is sort of three quarters excruciatingly boring and one quarter astoundingly powerful melodramatically. And they love, you know, Moonlight, which is lousy and, uh, you know, uh, you know, tripartite gay drug addict black poor story. And so, you know, you, 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 you won points for wanting Moonlight to win uh, and, and felt virtuous by the fact that you supported it and on and on. And last year, Nomad Land, nobody liked Nomad Land and it won anyway. But um, I think the weird, the interesting thing about this Oscars just creatively is that people who saw Coda adored Coda. That's the story of why it won all of these predecessor awards that weren't simply the awards given out by critics groups that largely ignored Coda. That the that the screen actors and the producers and the, the, and they all saw these movies and said Coda is something special and remarkable. It's a small bore precisely observed movie that is as sort of moving in its last half an hour as anything I've practically ever seen. And so I was, I was invested. Um, and it had this been 30 years ago, not only would I have been invested in Coda, but Coda would have made $250 million at the box office. I mean, this is a movie that is going to have an enormously long life once Apple TV plus lets other streamers show it. Uh, you know, like I was saying to my, I was like, I was saying to my, my, my sisters and my, you have to watch this. And they're like, we don't have Apple TV plus. So how can we watch it? You know? So anyway, so that, so, that's the investment that the Oscars require of is, is, is that viewers, people want to have some buy-in and there is, there has been no buy-in. So just having people watch it for the spectacle. Yeah. But now there was, this was the most, you know, well, I okay. I want to preface what I'm yeah. about to say, yeah, by saying I do not want to make too much of this. I don't. <clears throat> I'm not looking to read into this as a as a you know. It's, it is not a prism or a, a window into uh, America writ large. Um, but I think I can't help but notice that the the slap incident. Um, also reminds me not just of it's not doesn't just speak to this idea of celebrities living on entirely different in entirely different realities than regular people. Also reminds me of other things happening in the country at the moment, like equating words and violence, um, like the sort of uh, anti-shaming victimization kind of complaints, taking offense generally, and. It, the, it sort of fits in with the kind of chilling of comedy of, of harsh comedy. Look, I, I have no, I mean, Christine, your immediate reaction was good for him for standing up for his wife. There was a little bit of that. Yeah. And in I that sense, a, yeah, briefly. It's very old fashioned. It's like, right. you're talking that way about my wife at a thing. You expect me not to respond. Cause he said, don't get my wife's uh, name out, name of, your out of your mouth. Like it was right. Very with yeah. a little few colorful yeah. words. This in. by the way, being the wife that he has said, said in the memoir that he published last year, that they now have an open marriage because they don't want their marriage to be a prison. So I don't know what, who put what's name and whose mouth about whose wife or not. Um, but that was an that honor. So he was, spec yeah. he was defending her honor in that moment. But you don't in the old days, he would have thrown down a glove or slapped him with a glove or whatever. They would have had a duel. But that's not the way we settle disputes of honor anymore. And and actually, the the the, the resort to immediate violence was not was in retrospect, a few minutes later, I'm like, yeah, he really shouldn't be attacking someone like I get the wanting to defend your wife, but he could have just heckled him. <laughs> well, the whole thing. Remember, so he then just goes and sits down. And then there's like 20 minutes where he's sitting down and they're waiting for him to get the Oscar. Uh, 
And in part to see, I guess, you know, then everyone is like in shock and you don't know what's going to happen. And then what is he going to say? And then he gives this psychotic speech about how he wants to be a vessel for his people. And he's the crazy father like Richard Williams, who would do anything to defend his family. And he apologized to the Academy and to his fellow nominees, did not apologize to Chris Rock talked about how, how how difficult his life is right now. And then he said this one fascinating thing, which again, you know, gets to a person of genuine sort of like dignity, probity, and self-restraint, Denzel Washington, who is sitting there, a fellow nominee, right? And, and says to him right after this thing happened, he said, he said, you need to watch yourself because it's just when you are at your highest moment that the devil comes to call. Denzel Washington is a person of deep faith. He's the son of a pastor. Uh, if you read, he does not is not interviewed very often, but um, religion is a central player in his life. And I mean, real religion, not Scientology, which is apparently the religion that secretly or not so secretly will smith seems to be more of an adherent of and 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 he said you know like you need to show more self-restraint um because uh we are tempted to evil uh when we are you know when we feel like we are at the highest watermarks of our lives um that's the best most interesting thing that came out of this was to hear denzel washington being a genuine sort of like sage and will smith tried to follow his advice but of course then just gave this solipsistic gobbledygook self-pitying bizarre 10-minute speech when you know he probably should have been in handcuffs or at the very least denied the stage because like you know 40 years ago he would not have been allowed he would have been hustled out of the theater and then someone would have gotten up and, you know, they would have said, we accept the award on his honor, uh, you know, in, in his honor, because you can't do that. Like, you can't violate norms that way. But now, of course, we can only do nothing but violate norms and violating norms is fine. But I don't know. Is I, I, It's not good when crazy things happen at large American cult, you know, events like it's not good. So we like the equivalent of, you know, somebody at the Super Bowl breaking somebody else's leg in rage or something like that. I'm sort of trying to think of what, you know, collective American event. Was serious, but there's, this is part of the biggest problem with cultural analysis in, in general. We didn't experience this. This was not our experience. To universalize this is to make this, this uh, the societal sickness that we're dealing with here. And we're su suffering through all the takes this morning. Oh, this is an expression of uh, you know the rage experienced by African-Americans in this country. You just, you're only uncomfortable with it when it manifests in front of your face. And all, all this other horse crap designed to make this into something about us. It's not about us. This is a discreet act of violence by a lunatic who couldn't handle a joke. Oh, it's That's a little it. about us. It's a little I don't think about so. Us. And I don't think so. And I think this is the extent to which we're suffering from a, a broader societal malady where we attempt to universalize these discrete experiences, which is driving us all crazy. I think in a very general way, it's about us in that the wheels are coming off. And I, I, I don't know exactly why. I mean, I could you know think of all sorts of contributing factors. It's not it's, there's not a one to one relationship between what Will Smith did and and any you know one issue but the fact that this wouldn't have happened a few years ago and the fact that the oscars you know it used to be the 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 thing to watch for was were were you know uh emotional political moments right and now it's just pure emotion that's about us uh it's the sort of the 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 slip from the you know slipping from you know what was actually politics even radical or whatever into just sort of pure rage and emotion Right. Well, I think, Noah, you're right. And it's an important point to say that what 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 triggered Will Smith into acting uh, has is nothing not to do about with us. It has nothing to do with you. However. Whatever it was that failed to limit Will Smith's behavior. That would have been limited 30 years ago. Whatever that guardrail is. 
has been removed. In other words, he would have. I mean, we were just him. talking about Charles Sumner. <laughs> There's something universal about this. No, in yes, human, in but human it would have been done. It would have been can, done. We can empathize. We can sympathize. No, because Charles Sumner happened once 160 years ago. And our and as it happens, our Congress is not the South Korean parliament where people punch each other all the time. That's not us. That's them. But what I'm saying is that Will Smith, to protect himself, to, to protect what he wanted and who he was, there were guardrails there that would have that this thing where he would have had the impulse to stand up and do this, something would have pushed him back down in his seat. Possibly, but this does happen in comedy clubs with some regularity. But this was the largest single entertainment event on the planet happening live. It's not a comedy club where people are drunk and then get up and get into a fist fight. And this is about the rest of his life. Look, 15, 16 years ago, Tom Cruise went through a long, dark night of his career when he started acting publicly like a crazy person. Jumped on Oprah's couch. He started screaming at um, Matt Lauer about the history of psychiatry. And he looked deranged. And Sumner Redstone, who ran Paramount, fired him from the studio. Because he was like, okay, this guy has jumped the shark. And Tom Cruise had to spend five or six years trying to gain back his reputation for being someone fun to watch because it got uncomfortable separating the Tom Cruise who had screamed about the evils of psychiatry and why it was that Brooke Shields, you know, had postpartum depression because she would didn't, you know, hadn't gone through L Ron Hubbard's training or whatever it was, go, was going through his full head it took him years to recover himself. And Will Smith is right. Like he was just dancing at the party last night and no one is going to gainsay making another movie with Will Smith because the guardrails are gone. Now the guardrails are gone everywhere. Trump, the guardrails were gone, right? Trump wasn't, didn't, th- didn't mean the guardrails, you know, he didn't remove the guardrails. His success meant the guardrails were gone and he showed that the guardrails weren't there anymore, right? That was, it was a revelation of the, of the lack of guardrails anymore that Trump was able to rise and survive and thrive in 2015 and 2016. And this is another example of that. Maybe it doesn't mean anything, but it doesn't feel like it doesn't mean anything. But it certainly doesn't mean that you, Noah, are implicated in what Will Smith did. You're not implicated in what Will Smith did. The question is, what does it say about this, this world? The only purpose of the world of entertainment is to get people to like it and to patronize it. That is its sole purpose. Its sole purpose is to create a foundation of emotional attachment so that people will patronize their goods that is the all of it Um, can i can i say two things about what it might mean and we'll also i'll begin by saying the jury is still out on noah's involvement in what happened here you know (laughs) we can still investigate exactly how noah's related to the incident yeah, no, you're. I fully uh, intend. I fully anticipate uh, being implicated cosmically. Yeah, just somehow just prepare for that. But event. you know, uh, the no, first directly. thing is that's what we don't know. We don't Clearly, know Noah. We don't know what we, we don't, don't know, know what it's, uh, we yeah. still have to figure this out. But yeah. we do know that Will Smith lives in a consequence-free environment, right? And can do no wrong. Does do no wrong. He is insulated from outside. Well, he pressures. made Wild Wild West. <laughs> right. But even there, I mean, when we look at the way in which he lives his life, uh, he is in a total parallel universe. And so for him, it, whatever his will, so to speak, happens to be, it, he's used to it being realized without any downside. Um, and the second thing is, which, you know, I don't want to diagnose from afar, but there is a real mental health crisis in the United States of America. I mean, I think that is true. I mean, that is one way in which this may be illustrative of some some larger trends. And there is clearly a, an uh, an inability for people to to con- con- contain or constrain or restrain themselves and enforce a certain amount of self discipline. And you know, look, I, it, the historical parallel can be kind of complicated because it's you, first you'd have to find an analogous situation and it's unclear 
30 years ago or 40 or 50 years ago at the Oscars, whether the host would have made a joke about someone's wife, right? So then you just don't really know. But now we're also in an environment where you do make these sorts of jokes and then you have this sort of response. So um, it's hard figuring out how how unusual this type of response uh, actually may be. Okay, Ron well, Rickles hosted I mean, Reagan's inaugural. Did he spend the whole time insulting Nancy? Go watch that I, set. It is he brutal. Did? Okay. Brutal. Well, he was a mean comic too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I love. Yeah, yeah. I love Don yeah. Rickles. Yeah. But yeah. I just, you know. But Reagan loved okay. it. Yeah, Reagan loved it. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Here's the thing. Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. Okay. If that had been Billy Crystal, he wouldn't have made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. And if it had been Billy Crystal, Will Smith wouldn't have gone on stage and slapped Billy Crystal. I mean, look, it's just very, very hard to deal with people acting crazy and then trying to shoehorn it into comforting categories. I mean, that's the that's the ultimate truth. And that's where Matt is right, that that this um, the fact that uh, mental health incidents are happening in public with far more regularity and far more visibility than has ever been the case in human history, partially because of cell phones, partially because of the fact that you can see these things happening and they go up and they go viral and all of that. And then you ask yourself, well, did it always happen this way? But nobody was watching. But of course the watching plays a role. You know, it's the, it's, it's, this is the wrong, this is actually not what it really is, but it's like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. The fact that watching is present changes the way people behave in general. But, um, but yeah, the, the lack of restraint, the lack of internal restraints, the lack of shame or the lack of shame in the old fashioned sense, which is that you do not want to make a fool of yourself in public and your dignity is very important to you. And you behave in a way that attempts to retain your dignity. And that is something that is now increasingly missing. The dignity is less important than self-expression. Well, because they have a sense of entitlement and sense of entitlement trumps the, the obligation to behave in a dignified fashion. Every time we see it in politics. And now we, I mean, it's, it's been, you know, constant in celebrity for the last, several decades yeah, anyway I mean, there's also like a, yeah. a specific mental health crisis among celebrities i mean i don't know if they're more likely to be to have to be troubled these days or if if the 24-hour exposure just makes us more aware of it but we've elevated some massive stars who are deeply troubled that's um, true that's <clears throat> absolutely true although that, about, that 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 kind Cruise, of who's will smith Kanye, Mel Gibson. I, I, these are yeah. big titans. Yeah. And before the internet, there were there were there were ways in which their 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 misbehavior could be shielded from the public. And you know, studios in the old days had, I mean, famously, uh, MGM had a guy named Eddie Mannix whose job it was to keep stars hijinks out of the papers through a combination of blackmail and favor and you know and favor peddling and stuff like that with gossip columnists and the press and, and a compliant press in la and that was like 25 30 years and then you had sort of adaptations of it over time and now that that restraint system has completely broken down because everybody has access to celebrities because of the internet not only their own instagram feeds and things like that but also you know again just cell phone videos that show them walking down the street or something like that. And it's, um, you know, and, and, and the fact that, uh, uh, that one of the reasons you become a celebrity is that you have an inexhaustible hunger for public attention. And so then the question is what, how far are you willing to go to assuage or satisfy that, that hunger? It's the double-edged sword. It's like, you look at this and you think, no, I would never want my kid to be world famous because look at what it does to people you know it's just very hard to very hard to follow this all through but um it's not good is my point it's not nothing and it's not good and we don't know what it is and maybe it's maybe maybe in the end this will be a this will be sort of like a you know a forgotten anecdote but i kind of doubt it because we've never seen you know even on reality shows which have been now going for like 20 years they don't show people punching each other. Like if it happens, you don't see it in part because they would be accused of, 
you know, of like aiding and abetting felonious behavior. And, you know, that is something that a network could get itself into trouble with the FCC for uh, in terms of its license or, you know, or, or, or standards or things like that. So this happened, you know, again, we just, you know, we, 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 we haven't seen anything like this and things that are either it becomes totally anomalous and therefore it kind of fades away or it just sort of is never forgotten. And yeah, and then there's that question of whether or not it creates Noah's favorite term, a permission structure for other people to do the same. Like, you know, you slap, you slap uh, somebody because it's okay. If it was okay for Will Smith to do it, he didn't get arrested. Why can't I do it? All right. From the ridiculous to the not sublime, but deeply serious, uh, we have another controversy. Joe Biden in Poland um, giving a very fiery speech uh, in the last 30 seconds of which he ad libs the, the sentence, the man cannot remain in power about Vladimir Putin. Uh, Matt. We had a, uh, it was a good speech. It was a, I, it was not as good. I mean, it was, we, oh, uh, let me, let me back up. I want to go to Abe actually first. Abe, this speech uh, was the most right-wing speech that any Democrat has given since, uh, this is my proposition, since Bill Clinton said the era of big government is over, true or false? I mean, I have to rack my brain, but it's way up there. I mean, it's it's quite a neocon speech. I mean, it's it's, it's right jumped right back to the Cold War and stuck with it the whole time and was all about human liberty against tyranny and and uh, yeah, it was a right wing speech. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what notes weren't. He spoke a little bit about the struggle to maintain democracy at home, right? Or of uh, the the obligation of, of yeah. democracies to work on their own democracy. Kind of had sort of hints of of, of you know the, the 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 war on democracy from Trump, but um, mostly, yeah. Noah, what's your? I mean, because because it had this tone uh, was it wasn't evangelizing the way that uh, George W. Bush's second inaugural was evangelizing, but it was the struggle between freedom and tyranny is ever present and is the most important thing on earth. And, and, and then he evokes John Paul II, who, you know, is given a lot of credit for creating the, what would you call it? spiritual conditions for resistance to communist rule in, in, in Poland and in Eastern Europe that not only led to solidarity in, in 1979 and 1980, but also to the kinds of withdrawal from moral, moral acceptability that communism faced that led to the crack up of the, you know, of the, of the, of the Eastern Bloc and the, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? He said, he begins by saying, John Paul II said, be not afraid. And he ended with John Paul II saying, be not afraid. Um, so it wasn't exactly evangelizing, but it was missionary, kind of, even if it wasn't evangelizing. Yeah, I think it was a profoundly confused speech that could only have ended as it ended in a debacle. Um, because <laughs> Wow. Right, because it, it conveyed all these notes, these messianic notes about, you know, sort of Obama-esque arc of history, freedom, and liberty triumphing over tyranny. And the moral, uh, pr profound moral obligation we have to advance these values, uh, whatever the cost. And at the same time, however, it was trying to convey this very narrow realist message about the Atlantic Alliance's mission, which is strictly and purely defensive. And that was a note that was sounded repeatedly throughout this speech, even as it was talking about the global universal historic mission imposed on us by Russian aggression. So at the end, yeah, he steps all over what he was clearly trying to convey in the text, this defensive message by saying, by articulating the logic of regime change. Um, and then the White House spends the rest of the weekend trying to clean up this remark and insist that that was not what the president said, not what, he, what our goal is. And this is something that 
whether they, we're not sure whether they believe it or not, but this is something that Russia has said re repeatedly is the West's objective um, regime change in Russia, not just during uh, this conflict and all the measures we've taken to isolate Moscow, but previously this has been a, a, a narrative theme that the Kremlin has surfaced on several occasions and retails regularly. And we're left to, to sort of talk us out, talk ourselves out of the idea that they actually mean it. Like these are just ideas designed for internal consumption. They really are just kind of wacky uh, narratives that Russia, you know, retails to, to advance its own, its own agenda, the Kremlin's own agenda. But we don't know if they don't really mean it. I mean, all you got to do is listen to and see what they what they focus on. And honestly, the Kremlin sounds increasingly like a very extremely online uh, activist on 4chan. <laughs> uh, for real. I mean, they talk about the J.K. Rowling getting canceled and Russia's trying to get canceled and you people and your gender freedoms in the West. This is Vladimir Putin saying this stuff. And then you have the Ministry of Defense saying Ukraine is trying to weaponize birds. They're putting up, uh, literally, they're putting up... Um, uh, uh, signs inside Ukraine saying, don't worry, be not afraid. It's okay to speak Russian because there's this belief inside Moscow uh, that they talk about very consistently that it's illegal to talk to speak Russian in Ukraine and that there's intimidation campaigns against people who speak Russian in Ukraine. If they didn't really believe that, why would they be putting up billboards about it? So we, right. where we risk mirror imaging them a little bit, this old Cold War concept that's made a return when we talk about how they don't actually mean all the crazy stuff they say. And therefore, we can say whatever we want because every, every reaction they have is just is disingenuous. And we may not be right about that. They may be as crazy as they're acting. Matt? Well, I think the first thing to say is uh, Biden is right. God, we should we should want Putin no longer in charge of Russia. But the question is, is it the place of the president of the United States to say that in this particular situation? And when I look back at the Biden's conduct since uh, even before the beginning of the war, He's done all the wrong things. So first he said that right, in timing we, terms, he's said in timing at the terms, wrong he's, time, right? he's done the, the either said the wrong thing at the wrong time and then or, or not done the right thing at the at the right time. So just to go through the chronology before the invasion, he said explicitly that the United States would not deploy forces if Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, look, he, he didn't he could have believed that. But he didn't need to say that because that basically provided a green light for Putin. You want to leave Putin uncertain about what you might do. Then once the war begins, he's continually raised the prospect that we can't we can't be escalatory because that, Biden says, would result in World War Three. The whole World War Three concept is a fixture from old Soviet propaganda that now Putin likes to do in order to self-constrain the West. They call it reflexive control to, to bind what we're going to do. Biden has bought into that. Then um, the MiG debacle, right? He's the one who's, no, we can't give the MiGs to Ukraine because uh, that might be escalatory. All right, well, but then, but look at his trip. <laughs> Talk about escalatory. <laughs> First in the press conference, he begins with the whopper, which I kind of devoted a column to, where he said, oh, sanctions don't deter. When every single member of his administration for weeks in the run up to the invasion was saying exactly that the threat of sanctions would deter Putin. So he, he starts by saying that. But he also says when asked about the potential uh, chemical weapons use uh, by Russia and Ukraine, he says, well, if that happens, we will respond in kind leaving a lot of people to say, wow, <laughs> what does in kind mean there? You know, uh, we've used chemical weapons. They have to walk that back. Then uh, then the next day, he's talking to the troops uh, station in Poland, and he says, you, the, the sites are just horrible, what's going on in Ukraine, which you will, and the bravery of the Ukrainians is so commendable, and you will see it when you are there. <laughs> which, hold it, <laughs> what does that mean that they're going to go <laughs> after despite all these weeks of him saying they're not? They have to walk back that back. Um, and then finally, it culminates in the speech in Warsaw, where he says at, at the end of the speech, which no is exactly right. The speech was about NATO, NATO's purpose, and it was sent. It was supposed to send a non-escalatory message. That is the same thing that Biden and his team has been saying, which is we are not going to directly interfere in Ukraine, but we will protect, quote unquote, every inch of NATO territory. But at the end, he gives this remark, God help us, he cannot remain in power, which suggests an escalatory theme. He has to decide what he wants to do. And then when he decides, he needs to 
resource that, dis, uh, that commitment properly. And right now we have this confusion of ends and means. We have no end game for what we want to achieve in Ukraine. And if the end game is subtly regime change in Russia, we have nowhere near the, the means uh, or, or the, the, um, the, the rallying of the public behind that goal uh, that would be necessary to achieve it. We have never called for regime change of a major power. Like, if you think about it, called for regime change in El Salvador, we called for regime change in Venezuela, we tried, we directed regime change in the Philippines in the 1980s, we've insisted on regime change in Afghanistan and in Iraq after we went in there. But there is a huge power differential between us and those countries that we have suggested or or, or sought or advocated for regime change. We, I don't even know what it means to say there needs to be a regime. Putin cannot remain in power. Well, does that mean that Putinism doesn't remain in power? What does that mean about the structure of the Russian government after his fall? The Russian government, the constitution has been rewritten essentially to privilege and make possible Putin's you know, reign forever. So what, what is it that we want exactly? Are we now saying that everything that has gone on, that Russia, Russia's behavior is the result solely of the behavior of a single person? Um, it, it's, it's a strange thing to call for regime change when you were talking about a single person on whom you've decided to hang the entire moral blame for the behavior of his country, right? I mean, granted, he is an autocrat, and so he has directed the army to go in the military to go into Ukraine. But I mean, he's not an illegitimate ruler of that country, no matter what people want to say. I mean, he's an autocrat, and he's screwed up elections, and he's been horrible about the free press and that and the other thing. But we do not view the regime as illegitimate. We just view it as evil or, you know, mis misbehaving. And so either you have to beat it in a war. You can't, I don't even understand what it means to say he cannot remain in power. What is, what, what follows that? Do we have to drive him from power? Well, is, I think is Biden, God supposed to remove him from power. Yeah. I think Biden was trying to say something sort of uh, organic to the effect of, this man is just a monster. Um, yeah. Without yeah. calling, without without announcing new dramatic policy changes. Well, he yeah, came I mean, back, and, he and even he walked this one back. I, I mean, I agree with Matt. At what point do we stop calling this this business he has of blurting out stuff that's actually the opposite of what his administration's policies are, particularly in extremely sensitive negotiations and, and speeches like he did this weekend? At what point can we stop calling these gaffes? And at what point will the media actually treat this this discombobulation of of messaging that is a constant of his administration? Now, it's not a bug. It's a feature. At what point are they going to start treating that with the critical assessment that they should be? I hope it's sooner rather than later, because this was the last straw for me. But he, he went to church on Sunday, went to mass in my neighborhood because they like shut down the street. And when he was walking out, he was asked by a reporter, were you calling for regime change? And he gave one word, very firm, no. Um, however, some like little little spy who goes to mass at the same uh, church immediately, of course, wrote some reporter and said, well, it was interesting because the homily that it was it was all about, you know, how Russia is like the prodigal son. And maybe we should just forgive and love our enemy. And I'm like, poor Biden's getting a lot of mixed messages between what he's saying when he's in Poland, what his administration is telling him to say in written text and then what he's like off the cuff mentioning. I think part of the confusion is that maybe he's confused. He doesn't know the end game. He's not even trying to game it out by what we can tell. And there's some efforts to, you know, apologize for these remarks and suggest that they won't have any sort of effect because, you know, we don't react to that kind of rhetoric. We react to the movement of relevant assets. Uh, and that's what we would expect of, of Moscow to a certain degree, maybe. But when Vladimir Putin calls for regime change, as he did in Kiev, as he said, all you know, at the outset of hostilities, Ukrainian army officers rise up, take this man out of power, you know, that will end this conflict. He meant it. And he wasn't being ambiguous there. He couldn't achieve these objectives militarily, but he certainly did everything he could covertly and overtly to affect that outcome that he had said is the desired goal, why wouldn't he expect as much from his counterpart in Washington? 
leadership not i'm i'm you know i'm not going to be like i'm the, the 10 lessons of john podhorts is 10 lessons of leadership but if there is one basic 101 leadership rule it is constancy like that is you set a court you're you're the captain of the ship you set a course and you go on that course and if you have to make a course correction you do it carefully so that you don't slam into another ship and so that you don't turn the ship over because you steer too hard to starboard or whatever constancy is like rule one in leadership and what is fascinating about watching joe biden over the last 33 days since the invasion is his inconstancy we want to give him credit and i mean i i I'm not looking to score points against Biden. We want to see in his policy constancy, and we can see some of it, right? Just the absolute unshakable commitment to the idea that we, there is uh, no question, cross into NATO territory and we're at war. We are, we are not holding back. Don't you do it. And we're talking about the entire body of NATO countries on the border, and don't you do it. Don't you do it. That is the one constant here, period. Like, And that is good. That is a good thing. He has saved NATO by doing this. Without question, after years of Trump questioning it and all of this, he has said Article 5 is in existence. You are not coming here. I put 100,000 troops on the border. We're moving arms and weaponry. I'm here to scare the hell out of you, Vladimir Putin. Don't tempt us. Don't 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 cross us. This is the red line. There is no there is no um, uh, breaching that red line. That is the constant thing. Everything else has been inconstant. And there is this poll taken yesterday by NBC News. Biden has the worst numbers of his presidency. That wasn't supposed to happen uh, af- over the last month after we after after the invasion of Ukraine. Right? There was supposed to be a rally around the a flag effect. There were supposed to be Americans starting to think that, you know, he was resolute and tough and showing this is how it goes. And this is what happens when pre- what well, wasn't probably going to be much, but there should be a rally around the flag effect. And the truth is that the American people have negative associations of him on this and on COVID and on inflation and all of this because he is inconstant. He says three things at once every time he says he blurts things out and everybody walks the back or He's too negative about 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 easing COVID restrictions, and then he isn't, and then he is. And you know, Bill McIntyre, the pollster, who is a very fair guy and is not that partisan, though he is Republican, basically says the catastrophe that is coming in November is now unavoidable for Democrats because you cannot his numbers, Biden's numbers are going south while he is a president during an international crisis that he is handling at least in half bore not so badly but that is not how the american people are seeing it and you know why because he does not feel like he is in charge because he is inconstant and that is destabilizing that is discomforting you know when 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 in the middle of this inflationary spiral when when democratic politicians who were not biden like gavin newsom float handing money from the government to help you pay for gas like that isn't just like setting fire to money so that so that inflation should go up at precisely the amount that you hand people the money to pay for the gas. You think people don't know that? Like you don't have to be an economist to know that there is something there's something totally deranged about doing doing that in the middle of a financial crisis that involves inflation. So and that's not Biden's policy, but it's a democratic big government policy and he's going to get blamed for it. I and I also I go back, I mean we haven't the word that I think of when I see all his dithering and his inconstancy is actually it reads over time it reads weakness. And it reads weakness for a, for a person who ran as stability. As right. I'm the old geezer who knows how this Norm- town works normalcy. and you can trust yeah. me, normalcy, stability, but stability, like people wanted a return to some sort of week. We know what's going to come week to week. And now we have the opposite. It feels like you're on a tilt a whirl with this administration and it's not getting better. It seems to be getting worse. The more crises they face, the worse they get at handling it and the weaker he appears just as a leader. Right. And, you know, um, this is a horrible, difficult position that he's in. 
I mean, this is this is this is one of the toughest. He's coming out of a pandemic. He's got you know he's got an inflationary spiral, and he's got this war in Ukraine. But you know, you don't have to run for president if you don't if you're not going to be able to do the job. Like I, there's a weird thing where it's like people are saying, "Give him a break." Like you know, he was tired or something like that. It's like okay, great, yeah, we should really give him a break. Like that, no, like he wanted this is this is the job he wanted. So if he does it badly. He's going to get judged poorly for it. And saying, well, Trump would have been worse is not satisfying because Trump isn't president. And so maybe he would have been a lot worse or, you know, he might have been better. (laughs) There's absolutely no way to know, uh, you know, uh, at at this moment. And it's it's maybe that's comforting to Molly Jongfast and Jennifer Rubin, but it's not comforting to the people who are going to decide how 2020 November goes and what happens in 2022 and what happens in 2024. Now, let me move on to the uh, quick quick conclusion here. Uh, very comp- very confusing story. The 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 um, the leak of uh, from the January 6th commission of these um, emails and texts, I guess, between uh, Mark Meadows, the White House Chief of Staff, and uh, Ginny Lamp Thomas, Virginia Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas and a longtime uh, conservative um, activist, and the hay that's being made out of this. I think there are two issues here. Matt wants to, Matt has a very interesting point to make about the procedure, the fact that we know about these emails and this traffic and what that is, and then we should talk about the substance. But Matt, you, you you wanted to sort of express your extreme concern about the fact that we even know that these emails exist or texts. I, I, I do. You know, I have um, I, I've been a supporter of the January 6th committee. Um, I, I think it's doing worthwhile work. But I, I was disturbed by this leak of uh, Jenny Thomas's text messages with uh, then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to uh, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa at the end of last weekend. Um, because it had all the markings to me of, uh, of, a, dry, of, of a media drive-by, of a political hit job, um, and not, it seems to me, related to any of the uh, substantive investigative work of the committee, which is supposed to get into how exactly the riot at the Capitol on January 6th was organized and um, incited. And there's no link in these text messages to, to those events. Um, uh, what we learn from about it is that uh, Jenny Thomas, like um, millions of Trump supporters, uh, was following the president's line uh, that is that a fraud of uh, massive, uh, as McCarthy might say, a conspiracy so immense had resulted in a stolen election and that uh, she was urging the White House chief of staff to fight this election. And of course, we know that all of those claims were baseless and um, and that there the Trump's own uh, attorney general, William Barr, said there's no there there. Um, this was a fair election. Biden won fair and square. Ginny Thomas was wrong, but she wasn't the only one who was wrong. <laughs> there are a lot of conservative activists who believe the same thing and they were wrong. But it, to uh, to turn that uh, error into somehow a uh, an attempt to intimidate Justice Thomas into either recusing himself from cases regarding the Trump administration and its legacy, or to somehow um, pressure the chief justice into whittling down potentially conservative rulings in the uh, abortion case out of Mississippi or the gun case out of New York, I think is wrong. And it doesn't go to what the committee is supposed to be doing. It has no statutory implications, which is the purpose of a committee is to of this committee is to propose reforms, legislative reforms to prevent January 6th from happening again. So it, it, to me, I, I read this story. And even while I think there are ethical issues raised by uh, Jenny Thomas's behavior, in addition to her just being wrong about what happened in 2020, um, I saw a Democrat media uh, hit job um, in, in, in as plain as day. Okay. So um, I think that's, almost unquestionable and it's you know this is this thing like it's opening a pandora's box i mean if if these committees that are getting hold of of sensitive 
and you know sensitive information, private communications, and all of that that are gotten over a long period of time with lawsuits and this and that and the other thing. If 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 if, Demo, if this committee is going to go and play this game, you think this isn't going to be played against Democrats next year when the House takes over? You think that you think that any nicety is ever going to be observed ever again about confidential information that's collected by committees that has uh, useful? This is not normal. It is not normal to leak you know, private communications that originally nobody would ever ever have had, had access to. It is abnormal. It's creating a new normal. And what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And, and as Mitch McConnell said to Harry Reid, when Harry Reid lifted the, uh, you know, the filibuster for Senate for, for uh, appeal, appellate and district court nominations, you will live to regret doing this. And they did. Democrats very much live to regret it. And they're going to live to regret this too. And so are we all because... Uh, you know, more more norms are being crashed and more more guardrails are being removed for the purpose of political scores. That said, now that we know that these things exist, I am going to propose the following. Clarence Thomas has to recuse himself because that is what recusal is for. And here's why I say this. Ginny Thomas said on November 6th in a text to Mark Meadows, do not concede, Right. Do not concede, you know, we basically have to assemble so that we can assemble the forces to defend the president, whatever. And I don't mean that she was saying they're going to make an army and they're going to have a coup. But when she speaks, she is not speaking for herself in the ears of Mark Meadows or of Donald Trump, if Donald Trump hears that Ginny Thomas is sending him a text. Trump and Meadows are going to hear Clarence Thomas's voice, fairly or unfairly, justly or unjustly. They're going to say, Ginny Thomas is reflecting one of the nine Supreme Court justices in front of whom some of these decisions are going to be made. They may be five, four decisions, and we're getting a private you know, backdoor message about what to do about these elections. Now, as it happens, there's no reason to think that Ginny Thomas did reflect on Trump's, you know, did reflect this because there have been three or four Supreme Court decisions in cases relating to the election. I think all of them, uh, with the exception of the Alito decision, which came about the same time as the, uh, about the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's rulings, it's too complicated, but have been, you know, dismissed without anybody, you know, without anybody objecting on the Supreme Court, meaning Thomas has lined up with the idea that the two or three suits that that got to the Supreme Court from Wisconsin and other states were baseless. So in his behavior so far, we have nothing except for one ruling that doesn't involve these emails that 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 would suggest this. That said, um, she's texting him. Uh, it it may the fact that she was texting him may have had some effect on the Trump administration's behavior or the Trump White House's view of what might in what might be heard at the supreme court and uh under the proposition that you recuse yourself even if there only appears to be a conflict of interest not that there is one but that there might even appear to be a conflict of interest in order to keep the court you know pure and free of taint then he should probably recuse himself that's what i'm proposing and i'm an immense admirer of clarence thomas and i think he's a very principled person and I think that this is probably the right thing to do. But does anybody want to take the other side of that? I, I will just say I, I pretty much agree with you, but it is establishing a principle about uh, what husbands and wives who both have political power or political influence in this town. And there are many such couples on both sides of the aisle. If that's the new norm, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to have to recuse themselves from a lot of different things, including, you know, any sort of government regulation and oversight of the finance industry. If you're Nancy Pelosi or and, you know, on the right, all the people who have spouses who are in some sort of political activism, it creates a new standard. Now, you might argue that's a good one because there is a lot of incestuous uh, stuff that goes on in D.C., but it's a different it, it, 
it's an articulation of a, of a, of a tougher line on that stuff. If, if a wife and a husband who say we, we keep a kind of wall about that, we don't discuss our work with each other because it could lead to these conflicts. If that can't be assumed and, and accepted in a, as a matter of honor, as an honor system, then it's different. I mean, I agree. He probably should recuse himself because who need the court does not need that headache right now, but it is sort of caving to a standard that I don't think Democrats are going to hold themselves to. Can I object to that in one sense? I, I mean, this is a this is this is a unique situation. He has a lifetime appointment that you know, without you know, impeachment by two thirds of the Senate uh, cannot be removed, and so and he is one of nine votes. So on the one hand, he's only one of nine votes, and on the other hand, you know, in a five five to four split, he's the deciding vote in something for which there is no appeal and for which there is no higher. You know, there's and so um, this is not like Nancy Pelosi having power and her husband, you know, making money or or, you know, Mitch McConnell and um, and Elaine Chow or other cases like that, because there's something very specific about the Supreme, the rules binding or the rules binding the Supreme Court uh, that are that are that are different from other. I, I will. I can see that. Yeah, that, no, that's I agree. That's I agree. That's it is distinctive. And that's I would just say, John, you have to be very clear about where you're drawing the line, because take uh, Katenji Brown Jackson during her hearings when she said she would recuse herself from the uh, case that will probably be heard next term on affirmative action policies. And she's on the board of Harvard. And so she said, I'm on the board. I'm a party to that case. And therefore, I will recuse myself from the case. Clarence Thomas is not a party to the i mean i i don't yeah. when you mention recusal i'm not sure where you're drawing the line is it, does that mean every trump related uh, case that comes before the court <laughs> does it have to do with january 6 related cases clarence thomas is not the party to that and it's not even clear ginny thomas is jimmy what ginny thomas is doing is expressing an opinion that opinion was wrong her her um relationship to conservative activ activism over over the last 25 years will probably inevitably led to this situation. And I think she needs to think about how she's relating to these activities, but it's not, it's not like she was part of the, of the suit over the national archives. In fact, these texts came out of from right. Mark Meadows, not from the, the, right. uh, the suit that was before the, the court. So I just think we have to be very clear about where we're drawing the line. Okay, if I were if I were drawing the line, if I'm the person, if I'm the, you know, if, if I'm king and I'm drawing the line, the line is, were these texts reflective from November 6th to January 20th? Were they reflective? Were they Reflective, things, materially relevant. No, were they things that the White House in the person of Mark Meadows and Trump would have taken as, as hidden messages from Clarence Thomas on how Clarence Thomas would vote and therefore had an effect on the behavior inside the White House. Yeah, if I, Mark now, Meadows, if Mark Meadows communications are material, re materially relevant to anything the Supreme Court is arguing or over, over, adjudicating, then yeah, he would have to recuse himself in that narrow context. So Clarence, that's my Clarence Tom, a one wife, a wife's, views and this gets to what christine was saying yeah this is a very and i applaud your traditionalism it is a very traditional conception of marriage to say that there is exact symmetry between a wife or a, a spouse's opinion and the other spouse's opinion that's Trust not me. it is not necessary to make that leap in my view uh, and in fact you the more you know the thomases you know <laughs> that there are probably great differences of at least style between the yes. two on uh, matters of politics. And so I, 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 I'm not, I'm not prepared to say that he should recuse himself from, from January 6 related okay. cases on this, on this basis. Okay. Uh, no one needs to tell me that wives and husbands may have differing political opinions. Uh, believe me. Um, uh, I'm talking about something very specific. Okay. The president was a lunatic he had lunatic opinions and he had enablers who were either lunatics or hacks uh, and th th they themselves like Mark Mel Meadows may be a felon since we're now discovering that he didn't live where he voted and his wife didn't live where she voted and they are about to be charged with voter fraud. So congratulations for the Republican obsession with voter fraud that will now be nailing a former congressman and White House chief of staff. 
um, whether or not these lunatics and hacks and people like that were listening for secret messages from the Supreme Court that may have affected their behavior. In some ways, that has nothing to do with Clarence Thomas's behavior or Ginny Thomas's behavior, which may have been entirely innocent, except this is why you may have to accuse yourself, because you can never prove that they were innocent. You can never prove that Ginny Thomas wasn't reflecting Thomas's views. And again, the reason for recusal, Katanji Brown-Jackson doesn't have to accuse herself from the Harvard case either. Once she's on the court, it's up to her. That's, that's, that's the court doesn't, the court doesn't answer to anybody. By that standard, John, the, the number of causes in which Ginny Thomas is active would, would mean that Clarence, uh, Justice Thomas would have to recuse himself from uh, probably from the, the, from the same case that, that you just said, Justice Jackson would not have to recuse herself for its own personal. I, it's, it's a, we have to think about a limiting principle. And I okay. think legally the limiting principle is, are you a party to the case? And I, I don't see that okay. in this. Well, I think sense. that's a fair argument. And I just think that this is a this is always a problem because I'm talking about something that strikes me as a unique situation. But as I said about the about the leak of the emails, nothing is a unique situation, right? Everything is a precedent for something worse <laughs> or 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 open, you know, open enlarges the Overton window or whatever these terms are that everybody uses that just explains how the abnormal becomes normal. And the bad behavior becomes is, is suddenly becomes acceptable behavior, and why you can you know defend Joe Biden's inconstancy on the grounds that you know uh, Trump Trump was bad, which is really not a defense. You know, it's like congratulations. Well, we'll I think see how the public responds. I think I think there's a way out for for Thomas that whereby he doesn't have to recuse himself. He should he slap goes up Chris to, Rock. No, Adam Schiff. Oh. He goes up to Adam Schiff. <laughs> smacks him in the face and says, get my wife's name out of your effing mouth. <laughs> Solved. Full circle. We've come full circle, ladies and gentlemen. Matt, Matt Cottonetti, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Everybody get the right. Abe has triumphed, has brought the show to a triumphant close. So for him and Noah and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>